Welcome back to God's Work Displayed. It's been a little while. Uh, a few things came up, and so it's taken me a little longer to get to this next episode. Uh, I appreciate all the feedback I've got from the last one. And, ho and I got some other good feedback about audio quality and things like that. So I'm, wor I'm working on that. Hopefully this episode will be better in that regard. Okay, so again, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always email me at godsworkdisplayed at gmail.com or get in touch with me personally if you know me. And I'll take any feedback you have. And um, yeah, so we'll, we'll move on to this next episode issue. And that is um, the Lord's Supper or Communion, or some of you would use Eucharist, but uh, I feel like that conveys some other meanings beyond the simple biblical meaning. Sorry if you can hear the papers rattling. Because recently I wrote a little paper about the Lord's Supper and specifically what I think, um, how it should be conducted. Now if you go back and listen to an older episode, you'll you'll see one about the Lord's Supper and I purposely do not address... Um, who can take it beyond um, believers. But, uh, I, because I'm obviously not just focusing on people with <clears throat> biblical theology of severe and profound intellectual disabilities, I'm now kind of branching out, so I thought it would be good to go ahead and discuss this. Now, one of the things, the caveats, is that I'm obviously Baptistic in thought, um, because I think that's what the Bible is. <laughs> and so um, I have some positions that you may not agree with. However, um, I want to be very clear that what I say in this is my preference. And in fact, my church might do something different than my preference. But we can always um, give up our preferences uh, for the unity. <clears throat> and I think particularly when it comes to the Lord's Supper, that's important because I do think that one of the principal reasons we do the Lord's Supper is to remind us not only what Christ has done for us, but it is a communal thing, communion. <clears throat> and so it's done with other believers. So if you get baptized, yes, hopefully it's with other believers, but you may be the only one being baptized. Or you may you and three others may be getting baptized. But with communion, the it's an invitation to believers to partake. So there's a different aspect going on there. <clears throat> so um, I'm going to not read the whole paper, but I have the paper with me to kind of discuss um, some different things. I might quote from it. Um, and... Yeah, let's get started. I'm saying a lot of ums during this, and I apologize. I've got to stop that. Let me specify. So when we talk about the Lord's Supper, it's talking about the um, bread and the juice or and or wine. And the question that I'm answering is, who, who can participate? That's one of the questions. Later on, we're going to discuss... Uh, what are the proper, proper circumstances to have communion? I got this question from a friend of mine. You know, who can conduct communion? Who can participate? Um, these are all tied together. Um, as in, not only who within a church setting, but, but what constitutes a church or 
or does it have to be only in church? <clears throat> so I'm going to start with the paper first because based on this, I will make an extrapolation of my conclusion as to what I think um, you should do in terms of who can host a communion, if that, if that makes sense. And I don't mean host as in like the transubstantiation concept from Roman Catholicism. That is really metaphysical and I think a complete, completely poor exegetical reading of, of the text. <clears throat> okay, so let me first start off, I'm going to define some terms. So within communion, when you talk about that, you have three primary categories of who can take communion. And it's, it's determined by uh, what we call fencing the table. So, <clears throat> so your church is doing it, and the pastor's up there and giving the instructions. They're going to tell you, they're going to give instructions on, as to who can partake in communion. That's called fencing the table. Different people, um, different churches fence it differently. Within a church, you may actually have some people fencing it differently. That's not good. <laughs> I don't recommend that. I think you should be on one page with that. Okay, so <clears throat> there are three primary categories. There's open, there's close, and there's closed. So I want you to hear those endings on those last two. I don't know why they chose two very similar sounding words, but I'm just part of I'm just part of the tradition now. So open is. Um, Many people would say anybody who wants to take it would be open. I think that um, any legitimate church cannot go that route. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. But uh, many churches who take the Bible seriously will go with what's called a open modified position. And they would say that any believer in Christ can partake. So from this time on, when I discuss open, I am referring to the open modified position which is a position that says any believer in Christ can partake. Okay? Okay, close. Close would be basically any Christian who has been baptized and is not under church discipline. So that's close. So baptized believer in good standing in their church. <clears throat> and then finally there is closed. And closed would say that basically... Um, only members of that congregation, and typically that's going to be, a, we're talking about typically a Baptist tradition, so they're going to be baptized, and they're going to be in good, excuse me, in good standing. That being said, so, so there, so you, so if I visit another church that has closed communion, I could not partake in that because of, I'm not a member of that church. So, um, what we're going to do is a brief analysis of a few things. Uh, primarily, I'm going to focus on exegetical reasons, which if you're going to make any biblical argument, you should always start with your exegetical reasons, i.e. you're looking at the text, reading it properly in its context, historical, grammatical, literary context, and then, um, and then further looking at it within the whole structure of Scripture. And, and there's more to that, but that's a brief outline. I might touch on a little bit of the history of interpretation. I, well, actually, I'm, I will touch on that a little bit. <clears throat> and then finally, I'm going to kind of talk about some of the benefits 
of why the position I hold, um, what those benefits are within a practical theological standing, uh, and let me say this. I argue for a closed position, okay? That is my preference, and that so that's where I'm coming from. I think that that is a preferred method, is a closed communion. Um, and in fact, I, I realized the paper the paper I wrote, I wrote it kind of quickly, because um, <clears throat> people were wanting to know about position on it, and it was not, um, it's probably, it's not as well written as it should, it's not as well researched as I would like it to be, and I haven't had a chance to go back and add more research. Uh, there is a position paper, and I, th I think he converted into a book, um, out there that I think skews pretty close to my position. Um, well, this guy, I would say I askew to his position because he wrote it. <laughs> uh, his last name is Van Diver, and he did a, his PhD was actually on this, uh, his dissertation. And you can actually find that for free on Southern Baptist Library's website. There's a way to find it, and, and I don't have that the available right now. And then he did, he wrote a book on it. And I can't remember the title, but it, it's out there as well. <clears throat> the last name is Van Diver. So, hey, if Van Diver's listening, thank you. I appreciate it. I haven't read the whole dissertation. Just skimmed it. But um, I came to a lot of these though, conclusions separate from him. But then I found his stuff, and I appreciated it. <clears throat> so, and, and it's not nothing he did wrong. Not that. Many Baptists hold this position that we come to this independently, just thinking through... Um, other things, and that's it's just a logical conclusion. So, <clears throat> where so where do we talk about communion within the scripture? Well, we see the first accounts in a sense within the Gospels, and we see that in Matthew 26 26 through 29, Mark 14 22 through 25, and Luke 22 14 through 20. If you want, I, I ran through those quick. Um, it's not that important because these we just see that Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper, which um, is very important. It has a lot of uh, importance to that, but we don't have time to get into all the details of that. What what this does matter is that, that Christ essentially is this last Passover meal. He's now instituting a new covenant meal. And he even uses the terms about like I, I, this new covenant make a new covenant with you, <clears throat> which has profound Im implications for us as Christians beyond this topic. But what we see later in 1 Corinthians, which I say later, but 1 Corinthians is actually written probably before these Gospels. But what we see is that 1 Corinthians references back, okay? And we... But what we do have is this new covenant community that Jesus established. So what he said, what he's doing is he's doing this last Passover supper with his disciples. This community he has gathered with him, and he has he's instituted a new covenant, and thus abrogating and replacing the old covenant under Moses. And so now he has this new covenant community that he's established. So these new co this new covenant community is under a new set of rules that Christ has created for them. So then we get into 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is a whole of a letter. Um, is a lot of instruction. Paul is addressing a lot of issues that is going on with the church at Corinth. 
We're not going to get into all this, but one of the major issues is division. There's a lot of division within that church. He, you know, they want to follow different teachers. They want to do different things. They, they don't um, try to cling to the gospel. They try to use it um, to do whatever they want. And he's, just, he's pointing out that that's obviously not good. And one of the issues is that our freedom must be um, subservient to our loving one another and our unity as a body of believers. And so, we're going to look at two primary sections of 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 22. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 22, and 1 Corinthians 11, Chapter 11, verses 16 through 34. So, yeah, so two chapters next to each other. <clears throat> so, um, I'm going to first read 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 22. This is from the Lexan, Lexham English Bible. So it might be a translation you're not familiar with, but that's the one I happen to use when I'm on the paper. So I'm reading from that. It says, The cup of blessing which we bless is not a participation... I'm sorry... Let me read that again. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all share from the one bread. Consider Israel according to the flesh. Are not the ones who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? Therefore, what am I saying? That food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that the idol is anything? No, but the things which they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers of demons. You are not able to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You are not able to share the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we attempting to provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he is, are we? So, rarely, have I, I don't think I've ever come across anyone really taking time to look at this section of 1 Corinthians to discuss communion. But what I have found is that Paul, before he gets into the traditional section of communion discussion, we see that Paul is addressing this issue of loyalty to God, loyalty to Christ, and also with the relationships so, what this is, is it's providing context for the partaker of communion needs to be in the right relationship with God, as well as with one another. So you can't, you can't hang out with demons and with God at the same time. And what's happening is he uses this um, negating word in... Um, in the text, and it's a particle, it's uxi. Um, sometimes in Greek you'll say it ux or uk, depending on the circumstances. And it's, um, and what we know is he, he is using these rhetorical sentences, um, and he indicates that he's expecting a yes answer when he's, he uses this by using that one term, the uxi. <clears throat> So 
So what I say is he thus indicates that participating in communion is a demonstration of unity with Christ and his chosen people. Paul then continues demonstrating the fact that participating in things which are connected with demons is aligning oneself with demons. Okay, so if you, anything you do that um, aligns yourself, that, that participates with something that's not of God, aligns you with those things that are opposed to God. That's all it is. It's not really complicated, but we, we want to make it where it's not that simple. Because we want to be able to ha have our cake and eat it too, essentially. But you can't. <clears throat> we can't do things that are evil and then claim to be loyal subjects of God. Okay, so Paul wants the Corinthians to be clear that they can only be connected with one force or another. So they can only, you can only have your allegiance with one or the other. <clears throat> um, so Paul's demanding that the Corinthian believers have a full commitment to the cause of Christ and completes those thoughts with another set of rhetorical questions that also references Exodus 20, verse 5, and the jealousy of God. So remember he said, don't, otherwise you're going to make God jealous uh, or provoke God to jealousy. He's referencing back to Exodus. <clears throat> and then finally, he uses phrasing, so he switches the rhetorical questions from expecting a yes to then expecting a no. So, do you want to provoke God to jealousy? Absolutely not. No way. That's terrifying. So, um, let me. I'm going to read this section um, because I've, I've, I've thought through this stuff before. So let me. So I apologize if it's a little dry, but sometimes if I've thought thoroughly about it and I've written it, it's maybe going to come out better. So what it says, this passage does not make it explicit that baptism is required, but when, when one looks at the historical and cultural context of first century Corinth and the marker of distinction of Christians from all other movements save Judaism would be baptism. Okay, so how do, how do Christians mark themselves as um, no longer aligned with demonic and now aligned with Christ? It's through baptism. They baptize themselves, and it's a ritual marker, okay? It's our first thing we do that is um, very manifestly declaring allegiance to Christ, all right? This is all about who, who, your, who your allegiances are with. So, uh, furthermore, when one reviews the literary context of the letter and looks at 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 10 through 15, so I'm going all the way back to the first part of 1 Corinthians, we see Paul reference his thankfulness that he only baptized a handful of individuals because all the believers should reflect that they were all baptized in the name of Christ and should not have division. So he's saying, like, I'm glad I didn't baptize everybody, just a few, and he kind of makes this funny list of how he, uh, as he's recalling who he, he baptized, because he wants to not... He wants them to know, like, you all are all, it doesn't matter who baptized you, you're baptized into Christ, into his Christ family. And there's this assumption there that all the believers were baptized. It's a pretty safe assumption. To, to assume anything else is, is to beg the question of, of why wouldn't they have been baptized? Why were they holding back? And would they have been fully accepted as covenant members within the, the Cor uh, Corinthian church? No, they wouldn't have. 
And I'll get into why, why I say that a little later with some historical stuff. So then let's move on to 1 Corinthians 11, 23-24. So it's clear that Paul is not addressing the basics of initiation of becoming new covenant believers, i.e. baptism. But then this is where he's now addressing the divisions within the church and how they need to, to love one another across all economic strata. So, because this is coming into where, like, the rich are getting drunk and they're eating all the stuff and the poor aren't getting anything. And he's like, ah, it's kind of serious. Our love feasts are to love one another and we can show this love by not pigging out but sharing our food and love and caring for one another, making space for one another. And it should be a unifying thing. So if you have somebody that is not being unified, who's not they shouldn't partake because they're if they're creating divisions, they shouldn't be partaking because they're forgetting that communion is a unifying thing. And um, <clears throat> I want to go back to so I argue for close, and, and I feel like I've not been as clear. So what I'm saying is I think that every person who takes communion should be a baptized believer. And that upsets some people, particularly Presbyterians or the Pado baptists um, I'm going to let your conscience deal with you, but I think your theology is wrong on Pado baptism because I think your exegesis is really wonky. And, and I believe I have historical warrant for that beyond just the basic logical reasons. Um, but my question then is, so let's, say, let's say you have a Presbyterian that his conscience isn't convicted, and they go off there. Fine. But um, <clears throat> let's say you have a believer who doesn't want to get baptized. And I'm not saying, and I talked about this in the other an earlier episode about baptism, you know, there might be reasons why you can't have full immersion in the different modes. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you're not committed to doing, following through with the commitment to baptism. So even if you need to be sprinkled, let's say, I'm not saying if the circumstances warrant it, then fine. But if you're holding back just because you're afraid that people will know, you're not wanting to fully ally yourself with with align yourself with Jesus, then that's a huge problem, and you shouldn't take communion. <clears throat> so, I want us to go back to Matthew, verse, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, to give us some context for why I think you have to be baptized. And Jesus approached and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you until the end, all the days until the end of the age. Jesus makes it clear that baptism is an act of obedience. And it seems that Paul is also referencing this when he states what somewhat formulaically in 1 Corinthians 11, 23a, Okay, so Paul seems to be reciting a formula, like a statement of faith, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse, verse 23a, when he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. So if Paul would teach exactly as the Lord instructed him in regard to communion, then it's safe to assume that Paul also ta has taught exactly as the Lord has instructed about baptism. 
which is the first step of obedience and the formal physical initiation into the new covenant community that Jesus established. Now, let me be clear. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. So, if somebody has a deathbed conversion, they will be with the Lord when they die, even if they didn't get any mode of baptism. Okay? It's very clear in Scripture about that. Those who hold to baptismal regeneration are reading Acts really funky. Okay? And we'll get to, we'll, we'll address that at a different time. So, initiation in the New Covenant community. Alright, so, is my position odd? Is my position unusual? Well, is mine an anomaly within the history of the church? Well, no, it's not. I'm actually well within my... I, I'm well within church history on this. Some would say some of my positions are weird, but this one I've got a lot of support for. So, um, one of the earliest manuals for church conduct and discussion of apostolic teachings is the Didache which I had talked about in some previous episodes as well. It was written around the late 1st century. Okay? So pretty early on. It is not scripture, so I, I don't hold it to the same level, but it's very informative to, for us. And we, you do this all the time, I bet. You read some author, and you think they're really great, and so you use their teachings. Okay? Didache has fallen under that same category. And what it says, here it says, um, in chapter 9, verses 10 through 12, it says, But let no one eat or drink of this Eucharistic thanksgiving, except those who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For concerning this also the Lord has said, Do not give what is holy to the dogs. So the Didache is echoing what I say, echoing my interpretation of 1 Corinthians, in that you have to be fully aligned with the Lord, and it's agreeing that you have to be baptized to partake in communion. That was the early, some of the earliest thing, documented things we have outside of Scripture about how the church conducted themselves. So, that was the earliest teaching, was a close communion. <clears throat> they would have not let you do it if you confessed and not been baptized. Okay? And then... Um, Justin Martyr, in his his first apology, um, chapter LXVI, and I just forgot how to do those Latin numerals, so don't worry about it. Um, he also argues only for baptized believers to partake in communion. He says, "In this food is called among us the Eucharist, for which no one is allowed to partake, but the man who believes the things which we teach are true." So you have to believe rightly and who has been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins. So that's a reference to baptism. And unto regeneration. They've been regenerated. Their hearts have been changed. And who is, um, and so is living as Christ has enjoined. So they are in good standing. They're no, not under church discipline. Alright, so then it gets weird because after that, historically, we um, paedo-baptism was a later invention. And so... We call, we call the Roman Catholic Church now and the Orthodox Church kind of held on to that since then but so they kept holding on they started doing that and um, so all people had been quote baptized that were partaking in communion 
so they still hold that position. <clears throat> and then we, so what happens though is we don't really see much discussion of this until the 1600s, um, after the Protestant Reformation, because you still had a lot of Pado Baptists, but then you finally had Baptists popping up, and they're discussing it within the, within that. And so this, this is a long-running discussion, and an, I appreciate Van Divers work i would really recommend you do that it gets kind of complicated especially if you don't know much about english baptist <laughs> um, but essentially that there's this debate going on who can take communion and some other things along those lines uh, and multiple baptist confessions hold different positions on that and some just don't even say anything about it they just kind of leave it up to each church so it's historically I think that my position is the oldest historically held position, and then later on it, it's it's um, brought back up within the English Baptist and um, <clears throat> and has been going counter to the o open position. And then there's also a closed position. Um, let me say this: the closed position I am not opposed to. I um, I actually can understand it because you want to protect the. Um, the spiritual maturity of people in your church and so and as a pastor you are taking responsibility for their spiritual growth whereas a visitor you don't have that responsibility so um, you're it makes sense to me. i don't agree with it but it makes sense to me in fact i find it makes slightly more sense than the open position <clears throat> all right so i did a that was a quick run through. Now, I want to talk about the benefits of why you should have, uh, of the, in terms of practical thought, theology, why you should have closed communion. Okay, C L O S E, closed communion. Okay. All right. So, what's the benefit? Because some would say, well, if you do that, then you're creating um, the division rather than trying to strive for unity. You could argue that, but but I would argue that. Um, I am arguing for first obedience to Christ, and if we refuse to obey Christ, then the person who is refusing to obey Christ is the divider, uh, not the one who is encouraging obedience. Okay, so my argument is that I am trying to say we need to obey Christ in His commandments, and so I am not the divider. The person who is opposing me would be the divider. And that seems petty, <laughs> and maybe it is, but but I, I just think that um, that we have to obey Christ, okay? And, and why should we do that? Why should we be disciplined and self-controlled? Well, Hebrews 12, 11 through 17 says this. Now, all discipline seems that seems for the moment not to be joyful but painful. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your slackened hands and your weakened knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame will not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Take care that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no one growing up like a root of bitterness causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one be sexually immoral or totally worldly person like Esau, who for one meal traded his own birthright. 
For you know that, that also afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he did not find an occasion for repentance, although he sought it with tears. Okay, so discipline is tough. It's uncomfortable. But we don't want anyone to fall short of grace to God. It behooves local church leadership to investigate why someone does not want to be baptized. Okay? It, 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 it could be a misunderstanding of basic doctrine. Okay? It could be that there's some serious issues. They have some health issues and they can't be fully immersed. And so they don't understand that there's other modes as an option. Um, and that just needs to be discussed with them. Maybe they're open to baptism if they can have water poured over their head three times. Okay? So, we need to investigate that instead of saying, well, you're, you're, it's just counts. It's good. It's fine. It's not. But what if that's because they don't want to fully align themselves with Christ. They want to have their feet in both worlds, the demonic and, the, and in Christ kingdom. That's a problem. And I think that church, church leadership, the pastoral team, needs to investigate that and get into that. Maybe somebody's really just struggling to trust in the finished word of Christ. Um, and maybe by you pastors, if you're listening, if you sit down and talk with that person who's hesitant and and they're frustrated, I, I want to take communion, I want to take communion, but I haven't been baptized. And talk with them privately and find out counsel them you are a physician for the soul maybe by their frustrations it's going to bring to light what's preventing them from being baptized maybe they're not really trusting in Christ maybe they're not saved and so you have protected them from judgment by preventing them from taking communion you've done a good thing it's hard. It's going to take up more of your time. I know that. I know that. But it's worth it. People who aren't church leadership, counsel people. Meet with people. Find out why they're not taking communion. Get to know them. We are to love one another. We're to care for one another. And so if you believe a person's a brother or sister, then it's your duty to care for them as well. And additionally, like, by fencing the table, so this is saying who can and can't, but particularly with a close communion, it recalls mutual unity in Christ and a shared experience in obedience through baptism. So when you, whenever the table has been fenced where it talks about baptism, it recalls to mind when I was baptized. And so if we're all recalling to mind our baptism and what that was like, and then so we are sharing this experience that we've all entered into the family, we've all been initiated into the new covenant community. And so it it actually creates this unity that reminds us more fully what Christ has done for us because baptism honestly holds significant symbolism. It should be a memorable event, a one-time event. We'll talk about baptism in another episode about some feelings I have about that. But it recalls that we're we're adopted into a family. So we're unified. This also, I think, fencing the table is not just that. I think, and I grew up hearing this sometimes, that 
that we should be invited to reconcile with other believers so that we won't be taking communion in an unworthy manner. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about taking communion in an unworthy manner. That it is not about baptism. Um, I, I'll, I agree that, that that is not about baptism. That's specifically about division, about being at odds with your brother or sister in Christ. And so Paul is saying, you have to be reconciled with them. You need to be, we are a family, we have to be reconciled. So I think that communion is also a time to, to seek reconciliation, to call to mind that you need to seek reconciliation with a brother or sister. So that you do not eat and drink judgment upon yourself. So, um, yes, I think that only baptized believers should partake in communion. And they should be in good standing. That means not under church discipline. That's a whole other set of issues with the church discipline thing. Does baptism mean only immersion? No. But it should be the majority um, option. And the exceptions should be rare. But baptism does mean immersion and or to dip. And, and that's what they meant um, from all the grammatical evidence beyond just the word study issue. And this is historically been what the church has done. So why change what we've been doing for 2,000 years? Or at least 1,600 years when the English Baptists were going another route with some, some of them did. So, um, yeah, I, that's just my strong feeling. Now, what I didn't write in the paper was, who who gets to say that? So, if you noticed, I've been talking about a church. So, what I th so the one of the questions came up, well, who who can essentially distribute communion? As in, like, can it can a bunch of friends get together and do communion? Um, in college, I remember our campus minister um, just did this. It was rare. It was, I think, just around Easter time or something like that. We, he would, with our Baptist Student Union, which I know it's called something different now, um, he would do a communion service with us. Just us. That's just college students. I appreciate that. It was very, it was helpful. Much needed at the time. Although, all of us should have been in local churches. I, I was. And many of us were, but some I don't think were. Um, but what... But I think that that doesn't constitute a proper um, situation for taking communion. I believe that a properly constituted church is the only one who can distribute communion. Why do I say that? Well, baptism is not required. Does not require that. I mean, look at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Baptism doesn't require a church okay, because it's the initiation into the family of God, not not a local church body. But a local church body does church discipline. And so one of the issues I've discussed, if you've noticed, is that you should be in good standing. Well, only a local church can has the resources to check and see if somebody's in good standing or enforce that. So if you have um, person A uh, at your church who is undergoing church discipline and has not repented 
and let's say they've been banned from the church or excommunicated or whatever term you want to use, and they but they're continuing to attend every Sunday, they should be barred from taking communion. And it may be that you have to physically keep them from taking it. Um, that's a whole other set of issues. Um, but, or that church, if you have a regular visitor that you don't know, and they're saying, oh, I went to that church down the street, blah, 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 but I didn't like them. They were mean to me. Um, one, you should, and they're saying, well, I want to join your church. Um, but you keep saying something about church discipline, and I don't really understand that. And, uh, whatever. So you need to call that other church. Find out. Was that, was that person in our church discipline? It may be that that church has some weird things, too. Like, um, he smoked cigarettes and he wouldn't stop and we we couldn't allow that. Okay, well, that's not a biblical issue. You know, I think that smoking cigarettes is totally disgusting as well. But it's not a sin, necessarily. If they're, Especially if a person's not convicted of it. Um, can we encourage people to stop? Yeah, but it's not. it's not like they're harming somebody or um, idolatrous potentially. It could be. but uh, So you have to kind of investigate that. But the church is the one who has the resources to investigate that. So um, I think in general and that's where we strive to have unity and things. Friends are obviously going to have unity hopefully. But you know, it's easy to have unity with your friends when you all like the same things, do the same things. Where the real trouble is, is within a church where you people are different, different people, just different types of people. And so, that's the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the bride of Christ is that it's very diverse in its personalities um, and the type of people that are in a church body. And so, properly constituted churches who is the only ones that should be doing communion, and that's because of the necessity of the leaders to shepherd flocks well and to fence that table. And friends won't fence that table. It's not done. There's no way to do that properly outside of a church setting. Uh, it's not a strong argument, I know. It, it's not, but I think that's where it is. Now, let's say you don't have a church body. Well, you might have to start a church. Maybe that's the solution. Maybe you need to um, get over some of your preferences and join a local church. Preferences. There are certain doctrinal things that obviously you can't get over, and that's, that's understandable. <clears throat> so um, that's, that's where I stand on it. I wish I had a stronger argument. I don't. I don't think Scripture really addresses it. It's a question that... Oftentimes we ask questions that Scripture doesn't care about, or does, I, let me, it doesn't address because those weren't questions that the, the were being asked at that time, and so we have to use wisdom, we have to use the principles from Scripture that we know to answer those questions. Yeah, and the beauty of this is that um, being baptized doesn't change your status in the kingdom of God. Uh, taking communion doesn't change your status in the kingdom of God. It's not going to save you or make you holier. It's, it's, it's a reminder. It's a memorial to remind us who 
Jesus is and what he has done for us. Will it benefit you spiritually? Absolutely. Absolutely. But will it gain you more merit in heaven? No. No no way in it. Can I do that? So, I hope this has been helpful. I've had some yawns throughout this. Um, I've tried a new audio recorder, so if this works, we'll, I'll be posted soon. And please get in touch with me about questions, any other topics we may discuss. I've got a couple others I'm thinking about. Uh, one might be adoption, and uh, maybe, probably, if we've had this discussion more about baptism, some things about that, maybe some about church discipline. I'll look at some of those old episodes and review what I've discussed in those before going on. Again, uh, reach out to me, uh, godsworkdisplayed at gmail.com, or if you already know me, just get with me personally, and uh, we'll talk about it. And, and I'm open for critiques. Like I said, I had a friend encourage me with a, with an audio critique, um, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. And anything else? We can we can discuss um, things that are really strange. That you think like, what's Michael think about this? Or do you really care what I think? But <laughs> it gives me some fodder. So uh, thanks again for listening, and hopefully you'll hear back from me soon.